You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with uh, Moritz Sieben and I, Niels Kassel-Larsen, where we each week take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for long-time listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your trend-following journey. And if you're new to the show, our hope is that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog of all of the episodes that you may have missed. Moritz, good afternoon. How are you doing? How are things where you are? Niels, good to see you. Good afternoon. I'm doing fine. How are you? Yes, yes, yes. Very, uh, very excited. Had my son's graduation from high school yesterday. So a very emotional time. Important day. Yeah, big day. Very emotional. So um, it's good to be uh, back with you, of course, as always, and try and talk markets, trend following. And yes. What else comes to mind the next, the next hour or so? Now, last week, I think we touched upon, or at least I remember that I had written to my clients in the weekly update, sort of questioning this point about, you know, what is going on in the world, what's going on in, 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 in finance. And I actually found another fitting piece this week that I just wanted to read a short paragraph from, and it goes like this. The world is fighting the greatest pandemic in a century and the worst economic contraction of the last 80 plus years. And yet the stock market, which is meant to be a gauge of current conditions and a barometer for the future, was able to compile a record advance and nearly recapture all time highs that had been achieved when the economy was humming. The outlook was rosy and the risk of a pandemic hadn't registered. How is this possible? Now, this is actually words of Howard Marks, the famous investor who writes his equally famous uh, memos from uh, time to time, and it came out the last one this week. As usual, I would say, Marx is very clever. He goes on to list both uh, arguments for and, and against, but he does remind the reader in this memo of something he wrote five years ago, or I think 2016. Back then, he wrote, that's one of the craziest things in the real world. Things generally fluctuate between pretty good and not so hot. But in the world of investing, perception often swings from flawless to hopeless. Thus far, 2020, the swing from flawless to hopeless and back has taken place in record time. The challenge is to figure out what was justified and what was aberration. And then Marx goes on to conclude in his memo. He says, in other words, the fundamental outlook may be positive on balance, but with listed security prices where they are, the odds aren't in investors' favor. So, in other words, maybe we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves in his very clever way of phrasing it. So, I thought that was interesting in the sense that another week where, of course, headlines are gravitating towards what's happening in equities and and this seemingly decoupling from the real economy uh, and so on and so forth. So, I'm excited to hear how the week played out on your side, what... Uh, what went on? Yeah, I mean, regarding the equities, I mean, sure enough, as, as soon as I start to get a little bit longer on the equity indices in my trend-following program, it seems the equity markets are losing a little bit of steam. At least they don't accelerate to the upside as fast uh, anymore as they did in, in, in the prior weeks. 
Anyhow, I had a bit of a down week, 70 basis points down. I'm close to 3% down for the month and uh, about 2.5% down for the year now. So the last three to four weeks have been, I think, consistently negative for me. But I must say that there weren't any notable losing positions or, or real big winning positions in this past week. All of the markets were kind of like, you know, a couple of basis points up, a couple of basis points down. There wasn't really a single market that contributed significantly to the overall portfolio P&L. The only two I could I could spot was a short position in emissions that lost me a bit more than the other markets. And and one of the winning positions was, uh, was uh, being short the Brazilian Real. But other than that, very behaved portfolio. It was just grinding lower. I say that, you know, all the time. It is what it is. Let's see what next week brings, what the next month brings. It's just, you know, one week out of so many that we trade. So it, it doesn't matter all that much. I completely agree with what you said. It was kind of a, a, a weird week, I yeah. thought. I mean, on our side as well, we we're slightly down for the week. But what I found interesting about the week was that there are absolutely no clear direction even within the sectors themselves. I mean, in the equity sector, we had US and Asian equities did well for us, but European equities not so well. In you know, in the currencies, Mexican peso and British pounds were profitable, but not the yen. Corn and soybeans lost money, but wheat and soybean meal did well. I mean, and in energies, okay, they were mostly unprofitable because of this continued surge, so to speak. But then, you know, net gas probably did did okay. So it was really what I would define as a mixed week when I look at the uh, the portfolio. And of course, as you rightly say, I mean, some of these trend-following systems are starting to get stopped out of of some of the trends we've seen early in the year. And of course, the really big question, I think, on most people's minds, at least people who try and do what we do, is this just the classical bear market rally in, in energies and in equities? And then you you get the last people kind of stopped out before you see the next leg down. Not that we have any opinion about it per se as a, as a manager, but we can't help observing that that is sometimes what happens when you have these fast sell-offs initially because it gives the markets more time to consolidate and of course it comes at the back of massive action from central banks so it didn't just happen by itself so to speak so it'd be interesting to see the next i think the summer period could give us a good idea of where we're heading in the bigger picture i would say i agree i mean all of those markets continue to be very interesting I'm still fascinated by the rally that we see in the oil markets. You know, remember, it's uh, about two months ago that we had negative 40 in oil. It's been a massive bull market rally. We're about to 40 now in uh, in the July contract on WTI. The V-shaped recovery in risk assets has definitely taken place. Mm. Whether it has taken place in the economy, I have my doubts. Uh, many people have their doubts. They say this is far less certain and there is a slack in the economy and uh, the recovery isn't as swift and as smooth as uh, the markets suggest. So we'll see, like you say, Niels, maybe we'll get some um, some reversal here in the summer in financial markets. You know, and the other thing, of course, that I, I think we can't ignore is that every time we get these sell-offs, right, we often talk a lot about all the liquidity that's being injected in order to help the market stabilize. And, and of course, we know they want the markets to go back up again. But some of the other things, some of the other weapons that was introduced during the financial crisis, but certainly we've seen it also uh, this time around, I think maybe only in Europe, I'm not so sure in the US, 
is this thing about sh- banning short selling, right? So you're not, <laughs> you know, you're not able to put, you know, to get out of the stuff or or to get short the stuff that you don't like. I mean, it's really artificial in many ways to try and allow the markets to set the price of of any security. I agree. Look, I think uh, it, it goes for the, the two of us. We're free market economists, capitalists, market participants, whatever you want to call it. I'm not saying that there's not supposed to be any rules and that everything needs to be 100 degrees of freedom. But banning short selling, I don't think it helps in any way. What really got me a bit frustrated this past week is the debacle about Wirecard, a company that's a member of the DAX index since about two years. It replaced Commerce Bank back in the day. And people were applauding it and saying, well, this is Germany's fintech company and, you know, all the banks, they're like the dinosaurs and here's this new kid on the block and they're doing it so much better. But there have always been these question marks hanging above the company, like what's their business model? Where's their cash? How do they actually operate it, right? And they've defended it and defended it. And then there, you know, there was the Financial Times and the two journalists of the Financial Times who investigated and came out with reports and saying, hey, they're... Where there's smoke, there may be fire, but there's something wrong with their balance sheets. And, uh, you know, one thing came to the next. There was something fishy about the thing, right? And what did the regulator do? Baffin, the German regulator, which is supposed to be a very objective, neutral regulating authority, right? What they did is, well, they filed criminal charges against the Financial Times, which I think is is absolutely ludicrous, right? I mean, those are independent journalists doing their investigative work, and there's a regulator filing criminal charges against them. And of course, what they always like to do in any crisis, but especially here, is let's just ban short selling, as if that was a cure for the problem. Tell you what, it normally isn't a cure for the problem because it, it directly impacts the markets and the functioning of the markets. Short selling is very important for price discovery and figuring out what the right right price of a company is. So lo and behold, one and a half years down the track, uh, it sheds a very, very negative and bad light on Baffin, I must say, because it now turns out that apparently two million bucks are missing. Two billion. Two billion bucks are missing. That's yeah. uh, you know one 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 quarter of the balance sheet is missing from a DAX thirty listed company. Yes, of course it's the auditor EY. You know they probably uh, didn't do the best of jobs as far as as one can say because they you know they've been auditing the balance sheet for years and years and years and they've never spotted anything. And and now all this comes to light and you really got to question Baffin like why you know why did you apparently protect this company why didn't you just you know let the journalists do their job check it yourself right why did you ban short selling i mean what's the point of that and i'd I'd really like it if uh in the next couple of weeks or a month people approaching baffin and really asking them some questions about their behavior it's interesting right because i think that i mean this is obviously not the first time this sounds i mean again i don't remember the details but it smells a little bit like worldcom or Enron or something like that, where where you you know people just had made some I would say quite basic errors in not finding all the assets that they were claiming that they had and and what have you. And I thought nowadays you would think that it would be pretty easy to make sure that whatever assets you claim you have or cash or whatever it is that, that they actually exist. Do you know who the auditors were? By the way, I'm just curious. EY, EY is Ernst and Young. Okay. Yeah. It's about uh, money that's supposed to be on Philippine bank accounts um, managed by a trustee 
of course, if you're the auditor, you could go to the bank and just, you know, inquire about, hey, is the money actually there? Does the account exist? Does the business relationship exist, right? And get a verification that the money actually exists. Well, they didn't do that. Why would a DAX company have bank accounts in the Philippines, right? That I mean, that in itself should be a question, right? Yeah, well, the I, I guess, you know, there's a reason for that that probably isn't too bad. It's, you know, Wirecard is processing online payments. So, you know, if you're doing a, if you purchase something on Amazon or from a web store, right, then the party selling that, whatever it is that you buy to you, processes their payments through Wirecard. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, Wirecard is one of the companies that offers the service. And they offer it globally. They offer it in Asia. They're actually very big in Asia. And I guess this is why they had these accounts in the Philippines, because they're doing business there. But, well, it seems there's just no money on the account. So <laughs> what can I say? It's it's a shocker. I find it shocking that, that auditors don't spot relatively simple things like that, to be honest. And that we have a regulator that apparently wanted to look the other way and defend the company and, you know, rather shoot the messenger, being the journalist of the Financial Times, as opposed to, you know, saying, hey, well, there may be something very wrong with that company. Let's send our guys and have a look at them. Yeah, yeah. Speaking about the DAX index as a whole, I think this week actually... Apple and Amazon or something like that, those two companies together now have a bigger market cap than the whole DAX index. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's amazing, right? Yeah. And remember, they have a lot of cash on their balance sheet. So they, they, could, they could turn around and just buy, buy a, few other, thing. A, <laughs> exactly. a few other indices with the cash they buy, have. Buy a couple true. of car manufacturers. But even that, I mean, yeah. look at the market cap of Tesla. Tesla, by the way, uh, traded higher than 1000 bucks for the first time. Yeah. What does the long term? Uh, do you know what? I don't know. I know you don't trade Tesla. Jerry does, yeah, but, Jerry does. but do you follow it on your uh, on your trend model? What it would be in terms of position? Whether it's no, I don't. Maybe I should put it in. But um, you know, I've I've had. I think I've mentioned it on the podcast. I've had some involvement, successful involvement, uh, selling some calls when it did this. Uh, you know, this this very parabolic right? Yes, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. So that worked well, and I thought, well, this, you know, it moved from whatever it was, 200 to 900 in a matter of two or three weeks or something like, something crazy like that, right? And I thought, well, that's probably it. It'll come crash down to 500, 400, 300, whatever the case may be. It's not worth more than Daimler or BMW or any of those, you know, longstanding car manufacturers. But uh, little do I know, and it doesn't really matter what I think, it is complete craziness, quote-unquote craziness, Robin Hood traders, uh, whatever, Barstool Sports, uh, Dave Portnoy. It's like, you know, people just buy that stuff and it's the most valuable car company in the world. There you have it. But you know what? I And, and again, now people must think we're what, what's happened to the podcast this week. We're talking about, you know, regulators and the single stocks and, and all of that good stuff. But let's just... Uh, roll with it today. Um, I think what is interesting about Tesla, not that I know much about it at all, but when I've heard people say that really thinking about Tesla as a car company, they really say, well, you know, think about the success of SpaceX, right? I mean, that that's how, this is what you need to take into account when you think about Tesla. And then they have, they have some, you know, a really good explanation, et cetera, et cetera. But I think 
it seems like a very unique company because there, it divides the, the the investor base as well. I mean, obviously, some people think it's a big, it's another wire card, so to speak, if I can put it that way. And other people think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. So yeah, I, look, you know, it's it's definitely much more a tech company, I would say, than mm. you know, BMW or Daimler. You know, yeah. people say it's the iPhone on wheels. I'm not sure if you've ever been inside a Tesla. I've been, I've driven one, and it really is an iPhone on wheels. Like right. everything's digital and easy to control and, you know, it's just very different than your BMW. So it may be the future, right? If, if cars are headed that direction, you know, it becomes EV or it becomes hydrogen-powered cars, whatever the case may be, and it has a lot of technology around it, then, uh, you know, maybe Tesla has a leg up on all those other producers. And the markets always play the future. Yeah, true. Although... I will say that I think what the COVID-19 crisis and all the debates about conspiracy and, and things like that and where we may be heading, you know, some kind of techno-controlled world, and for that matter, by the way, on, on a um, certainly direct, how should I put it, level of reference, someone told me who had a colleague that went to China not long ago, but after the crisis had started, as soon as that person came out of the hotel in the morning, he was stopped by a drone. And that drone spoke to him and told him to go back to the hotel, make sure he had his mask on, etc., etc. So what I'm saying is that technology, as much as we love it, and we all want the latest iPhone, etc., etc., at some point, technology I can easily see because something that we may need to think about differently, meaning could Tesla stop all their cars around the world if they wanted it to? Do, can they control them? It seems like they can because they can download the software without people having to do anything. So, I mean, yeah, technology is fantastic and we see how the tech firms are the ones doing the best out of this through this crisis. But at what point becomes technology too controlling, too dominant? There can very well be some uh, scary aspects to all of that. And, and I have the feeling that the uh, speed of development, technological development, uh, becomes faster and faster and faster. It's, it's like one of those things where, yes, you get your new iPhone, then you get the next iPhone or the next computer device or whatever the next thing it is. And it's kind of like multiples better than the one that you had previously. Yeah. And it can do more stuff and it can do AI and it can do augmented reality and, you know, it is um, maybe in a few years' time, our world will look completely different and we're in this technology wrap. Everything around us is technology. Could very well be. There may be tons of advantages. We probably shouldn't be all too negative about that, but I think what you're suggesting, Niels, is, yeah, but we also have to be reasonable and in a measured way with that and thoughtful about it so that it doesn't, you know, we don't want to be controlled by... A computer we still want to be free human beings right yeah and i think actually i mean i think the the division we see uh, spilling out right now around the world is ignited by what's going on in the us i think shows us that um may not be actually for the better but anyways that's probably another discussion for now I don't know if you came across anything in particular on, we've got a few questions we need to get to, but before that, whether there is anything um, that you uh, want to bring up today, uh, Moritz, uh, in particular? I think we should do the questions. I needed to be a couple of days off last week, so I didn't uh, follow social media all too much. 
No. I actually got this question from someone a couple of weeks ago. We didn't bring it up last week. We had Rob on. So I think let's tackle it today. It'll, it'll interesting to hear uh, your thoughts. It is from Thomas. Thomas is writing, with the Fed communicating that it will keep rates low for the foreseeable future and considering that this type of monetary policy can create a major tailwind for equities, rightly or wrongly, how do you feel this will affect trend following? I ask because trend following has not performed well categorically over the past decade, a time slash market which has really been driven by monetary policy. Do trend following strategies need central banks to butt out in order to truly be successful? So I think it's a fair question from Thomas. So uh, I wanted to hear your thoughts uh, more on this. Obviously, I have my own strong opinions. Fair question and a good question and very difficult to answer because I'm. it's impossible for me to say that the reason trend following didn't work in the past couple of years or not as well. I don't want to say it didn't work. I think what people have been observing is that the past decade has been a period of relative underperformance regarding trend following if you compare it to decades prior. Now, what are the reasons for that? We've heard that, yeah, it's the loss of interest rates, it's central bank intervention. Every time there is a fire, then there's central bank, there's the central bank fire hose of liquidity extinguishing that fire, and it's kind of like manipulating the markets. This may very well be true, but it would be too easy to say this is the root cause of the thing. There may be other things that are the root cause for trends not developing as strongly and not lasting for as long as they used to in the, say, 1980s, 1990s. So I think my, my hunch is it does have an impact. We're definitely feeling, all of us, we're feeling the loss of interest. We're feeling that on the money that we would normally make on T-bills. Remember that the interest rate is an anchor price for all risk assets. You know, every asset that has a higher risk than, say, a T-bill, right, needs to, in the long run, achieve a higher rate of return than that T-bill. So it's all kind of like based off of that interest rate. Now, the lower the interest rate, the lower the expected returns of all risky assets. So it's an environment that doesn't help us. But I don't want to say it's the only reason or the predominant reason for a, a lack of better trends in the past 10 years. Yeah. So I want to break it down a little bit more for you, Thomas. I want to think about where could the Fed possibly have had an impact, right? So if we think about our portfolios that consist of currencies, bonds, equities, and commodities, let's talk about the equities first, right? That's what we associate a lot of this sort of kind of asset inflation that we've seen with the Fed's activity. And I think it's true what Mart says. I agree that they definitely have had an impact on the way those markets have trended because every time there's been a hint of a really good sell-off, so to speak, they come to the rescue. So it's not so much that we couldn't get into the trends on the downside and, and of course, we always take a little bit of a loss or, or sometimes a bigger loss when the markets turn from an all-time high and suddenly go into a, a tailspin to the downside. But what we have also had to deal with is this artificial V-shaped recovery in, in equities on a few occasions now, not just 2020, certainly also uh, 2018. We had a very quick recovery. We also, in, in certainly last year, 2019, uh, when Trump famously tweeted on the 24th of December and the market just turned on a dime and went straight back up. So there has definitely been many 
challenges for the equity investments. And I would say on our side, it's probably one of the worst performing, if not the worst performing sector in recent years. Since it's a big sector, I mean, there are many markets you can trade in equities. It has an impact on performance, without a doubt. It would be crazy to say it, it didn't. So I think, one, for sure, the Fed's activity has a direct impact on our profitability in the equity space right now, the equity sector. Fixed income, you could potentially argue the other way around because maybe their activity has prevented some change of position because generally speaking, we've had a quite a lot of long positions over time where maybe we would otherwise have had more of a shift from long to short positions, which always cost a bit of money when you go through the transition. So you could possibly argue that fixed income has been helped by their activity. It's certainly been the best uh, sector for the last 10 years, I think, for most trend followers. So maybe you could argue that. You could also just argue that, well, that's the interest rate cycle. Which, by the way, let, let me just say that, Moritz, um, uh, to our discussions from before, one thing I heard this week is that the famous, uh, I guess he's a, an economist, Jeremy Siegel, came out saying that he thinks that the interest rate cycle have turned, that we have seen the lowest interest rates in, in our generation and maybe ever, by the way, just putting it out there, right? So, okay, back to your question, Thomas. Currencies is kind of a mixed bag because, as you know, it's two countries against each other. For the first time now, actually, all G10 countries have more or less the same level of interest rates. Maybe we're going to see now more of a a free-flowing market without too many biases in the currency pairs. So who, who knows? But potentially you could argue that the central bank activity has had some level of impact on currencies, potentially. I don't know. But then comes the commodities, and this is where I really want to just stress that point, that this is why they are so important. Because I think it's one area that the Fed doesn't really impact per se. They do do it indirectly because what the Fed has been really good at, in my opinion, the last since the last crisis, is to manage the overall economy so it doesn't get too hot or too cold. And that does prevent all markets from having boom or bust and therefore really big trends one way or the other. And that's probably true as well for, for commodities. But commodities are much harder to control because they can be weather-dependent, you know, demand, supply, trade wars. There's so many things can impact the price of commodities. So this is, of course, why I think both Morris and I really love commodities. We understand the importance. It is the least correlated part of our portfolio. And frankly, I think it's something that people underestimate the value of these commodities when it comes to trend following as a whole because as we've mentioned many times you can apply your trend following techniques to one sector that's fine you can do that but you're not going to get the same result as comparing to a diversified manager over time because there can easily be periods of time sometimes years where a certain sector just doesn't trend enough to make money from. So unless you have all the other things in your portfolio, you may think that trend following just doesn't work or has stopped working. But the truth is, it's just the sector going through some kind of transition, which can take, you know, a number of years. To answer your question, Thomas, in more, um, in more of a summary, yes, I do think that federal, uh, central banks have some level of impact on why Trend followers may not have seen the same level of performance. I will interject, though, that when we look at our performance, 
And we actually, I mean, Mort correctly pointed out that some of the performance that hedge funds earn comes from the risk-free rate of return we have on the cash sitting in the bank that we are not using for for margin. But in our case, actually, as a firm, we stopped reporting that. We took it out of our composite returns in 2007 because it's not something we really earn. It's just something we get as part of holding other people's cash, right? So it's not really our alpha. So even if we strip out the interest income since 2007, what we see is that from 1984, when our strategy, current strategy started, uh, to now, and then from 2006 to now, when we had the first major upgrade to the model, and then from 2013 to now, when we had the second major upgrade, those three timeframes, although they're very different, the annual rate of return that we produced is almost the same, almost the same. And that's even taking into account that we're not at a new all-time high right now. So if we were, I would say they're practically the same. So right Back to Mortis' point, just because the industry hasn't done well doesn't mean that individual managers couldn't have done well. And I, I'm, I'm sure you can find a few of those. Not many, maybe, but, but you could certainly find a few. And it goes back to one of the other topics that we love to discuss on, on the podcast, and that is, of course, how does size impact performance? Because one thing we do know, personally, it's my, it's my opinion, that one of the reasons why trend followers as an industry seemingly has produced lower returns is also because I think they have restructured themselves um, about 15 years ago when the institutional investor base became very dominant in our industry. And what managers realized was that institutional investors don't like volatility, right? They like these low, steady-type return strategies. So in order for managed futures or trend following to compete with that, it was better to lower your overall volatility of the strategy, even though you would also lower the returns. I think it's a combination of structural changes in the design or in the volatility level of our industry that we're offering. So lower volatility, but lower returns. And then, of course, what I mentioned before in terms of, of the Fed action and, and all of those things. So I think there's a number of, of things playing. But I do think that fundamentally trend following will be just fine going forward, but we will always have periods just like any other strategy where we don't perform as well as we normally do. Well said. Looking back at the last six months, I'm actually quite happy, even though I'm, I'm slightly down with my trend following strategy. But, you know, we've had a pandemic. We've been down close to 40% in the equities in terms of drawdown. Yes, we've made it back up, right? But uh, that was far, far, far from certain two months ago. The way my trend-following program traded through that episode uh, was actually quite remarkable, you know, and in particular in March when uh, apparently most of people were losing money. I had a very strong month, and I think you had as well. And this is this is really a relief. I, I You know, I don't want to underestimate, and, and I'd like people to understand that, that when... The world out there is in such a volatile environment and people are in despair and they're losing money and everything is black, right? And then they're frustrated. And you have a strategy that that saves you from that, that actually makes you money. This is extremely valuable because you're kind of like calm, your portfolio is robust, you know, you can step back and make better decisions. Maybe you have some, you know, free cash that you can deploy in certain things, whereas other people need to sell in order to raise assets and, and, and raise liquidity. So you're in a, in a position of strength when that happens. 
yeah, okay, it, it has recovered now. We've being trend followers, we didn't pick the bottoms, uh, we didn't pick the tops as as we never do, right? But so that the V, the, the strong V-shaped recovery is not not good for any trend following trader, at least not for the longer medium to longer term trend following traders as as we are. Regardless, I mean, looking back, um, it's it's been just fine the way the system traded. And more importantly, I would say you can choose to look at individual performances, right? Say, look at the equities and look at the trend-following component or look at the bonds, et cetera, et cetera. You can do that. But what you really should do is to look at it in a blended portfolio because once you do that, you see the benefit of having these non-correlated strategies and how someone who would have had that this year would have actually at probably at all points through the crisis been absolutely fine and may even be a little bit up for the year right now and so what what is really important to understand and if and maybe i would recommend people to do their own calculations in a spreadsheet it's not so difficult but it's the value of non-correlation non-correlation or negative correlation is actually far more important than excess return so what would you rather have another an equity that gives you two percent more on average or a non-correlated strategy that might give you 2% less but is non-correlated, well, you'll find that when you combine that with your equities, it's better to have a slightly lower yielding but non-correlated return stream in your portfolio. And this is, of course, something that Chris Cole wrote a lot about in his uh, when when putting together the 100-year portfolio where he looks at long vol, he looks at trend following, he looks at equities and bonds, etc., etc. And by the way, Back to Thomas's question about why it's been difficult in the last 10 years. On top of that, I think if you did the analysis of market conditions in general, you will find for whatever reason, it could be the Fed, could be others, but for whatever reason, it has been the most mean reverting decade we've seen in 50 or 100 years. And these things don't last forever. Uh, at some point, you, as as many of these uh, very um, interesting people that I follow, but but certainly one of them I remember, and I think he's called White at, uh, as a last name, but he used to head up the International Bank of Settlements, so essentially the bank of the central banks. And he was he he was quoted, and I've seen other people use that quote later, but he was quoted for saying, "You can't remove risk; you can only postpone risk. And once you when you do." It usually comes back as a much bigger risk when it does show up, and and I think that's true. And I think personally, I think we're going to see levels of volatility increase back to what it used to be. The anomaly for me is the last decade. It's not what we're going into in the future that's going to be so different. It's just the fact that we've had ten years where people thought everything was risk free. I'd be very surprised if we had another 30 years continuing the same way that we had the 2010 to 2020 period. So um, I agree. At some point, I think there will be a paradigm shift, a regime shift in those markets where something will happen, something will break, volatilities will go higher, the level of interest rates will rise, the level of debt will be too great, whatever the case may be. But maybe the past 10 years, like you rightly say, have been the anomaly and we're going back to a more normal market environment with, uh, you know, stronger, more sustainable trends. And we'll be doing just fine then. Yeah. And I mentioned Jeremy Siegel before, um, and um, I don't know much about him, but I know he's a famous guy of some sort. 
so I do think it's interesting that he came out, and this was something I picked up on the Masters of Business podcast with Barry Ritholtz uh, this week, where he was out saying, you know, by the way, you should know, I've gone on record saying that this, we may have seen the lowest interest rates of our, not just of our generation, but ever. And I didn't actually get to the point where he argued for why, because then I had to do something else. So I'm going to go back and listen to the explanation. But I do think it's interesting, and I've said before on the podcast, I personally believe that markets go in cycles, and therefore this interest rate cycle that usually is around 35 years, but this time it's been a bit longer, I would grant that, and could be the Fed's reason or actions to to uh, that's caused that. But I don't think the cycle has stopped. I mean, I think we're looking at a future that is vastly different from what we've just been through. Anyway, it's a good question. Thomas, thanks for that. And by the way, if anyone wants to ask, to ask a question of Moritz and me or any of our guests that comes on, just send us an email to info at toptradersonplug.com and we'll be doing our best to bring it on as quickly as we can. We have another question. Greetings from Melbourne, Australia. Long-time listener, thank you for the great content you put out. A topic you discussed recently got me thinking about diversification within individual markets. Currently, I'm trading about 40 markets diversified across currencies, commodities, and bonds. I'm running an automated system that trades these markets, running the strategy that I have found to be optimal for me through my research and backtests. My question relates to how many strategies to run per market. My thinking has always been to keep refining to find the optimal strategy and run this as by definition that should produce the most favorable results. I'm curious about your thoughts on the benefits from a diversification standpoint of running multiple concurrent strategies per market, even if they appear to be suboptimal relative to the best strategy. By different strategy, I mean considering differently speeds, variables, and therefore entry exits. How many different strategies should I be running on each market? The system is fully automated, so running multiple strategies concurrently is not a problem. Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. This is from Stratus down in Melbourne, Australia. Thanks for that, Stratus. It's a good question. As always, Mortz. Great question from uh, Melbourne, Victoria. And yeah. uh, a couple of things come to mind here. Well, first of all, as a precursor to my answer, the more subsystems or the more speeds, the more many systems you want to combine into a larger system, the larger generally your capital requirement and the account size requirement, right? Because if you're trading futures contracts, the minimum size that you can trade is one contract. If you're splitting it over more than one system and you want to trade at least one contract for each of these subsystems, it requires a larger account size. So that aside, let's say you have the you have the money, you have the assets to trade multiple systems. Then what I would say is, if your research shows that you have found a system that is really consistently, stably, the best performing system, from whatever risk-adjusted point of view, MAR, whatever ratios it is that you're using, if it is the system and you're confident that it will always be, I know this is impossible, the best system, well, then by all means, trade that system, right? Because it is the best system. Now, what I can say is my research has shown, you know, as far as diversified trading speeds are concerned, that I cannot be certain 
that a certain trading speed is always going to be the best trading speed and therefore I should only be trading that one trading speed, say the 150-day breakout or something like that because there will be periods of time where the 200-day and the 250-day work better and sometimes the 50-day works better, right? So what I find is that if I combine them, if I combine them, I get a better overall result. Why? Because the correlation between those subsystems is not one. Even though one of those subsystems may have a lower annual rate of return than another one, if it isn't correlated by one, if it's correlated by, say, 0.2 or 0.3, as it sometimes is the case, then adding that system to the overall portfolio increases the Sharpe ratio and the overall return of my total portfolio. And this is why I do it. And uh, I think this is where the research should focus on as far as diversifying across trading speeds is concerned. Yeah. So let me uh, address this point from a couple of other angles as well. So to Morris's point, first of all, we did some internal research on our side a couple of years ago, but it's still exactly valid as, as it was back then, where we went back 28 years, uh, back to 1990, and we looked at what would the best possible look-back period be for each of those calendar years. And from memory, I just happened to remember a couple of them. So using the trend-following model that we were using for this study, which is not exactly how we trade, but it's pretty close. And of course, it won't be exactly how Morris trades, and it won't be the same markets as Morris trade, but directionally, we're going to be not that dissimilar, right? So in 1990, the best possible look-back period was 20 days. In 1991, it was 40 days. In 1992, it was 260 days. And I just remember these three because that's what I kind of talk to, to my uh, clients about is just to show you that just in those three years, you had massive dispersion between the best look back period. And then if you go on each year by year, they will be very different. But what you will find though is that there is more observations from, I would say, about 120 days up to maybe 280, 300 days, right? There are more times, and this is, of course, across a fully diversified portfolio, et cetera, et cetera, but there are more occasions where, let's call it a medium to long-term trend-following system works better than a short-term trend-following system, right? And so this is also the reason why I think when you look at those short-term managers who are successful, they're frankly not trend-followers per se. They trade different things in the short-term space, but I wouldn't call them short-term trend-followers. So that's the first observation I had about look-back period. I think the other thing Mort says really well is that how do you define different systems, right? So you could say, okay, if it's trend following, I define a similar system as just, you know, a breakout methodology and use the same breakout methodology. And I think that's fine. I mean, you could find what you feel is the the, the best. So I would rather think about it as the best methodology you, you you feel you can find, right? And and in trend following, whether that's moving average crossover, it's time series momentum, it's breakout price, volatility, whatever you feel is the best. Then I completely agree with Moritz is then you have to add the diversification through different speeds and, and parameter selections, right? But you could also think about it as 
why don't I diversify across different methodologies, right? Why do I have to just use one method to extract trend? Or maybe I combined something that is not trend with trend. I mean, things like that. And I think only the research will show you and guide you as to what you feel comfortable with, as to, as to what you think you can replicate. Because remember, we test what we trade and we trade what we test. So you have to be able to actually deliver in real-time trading what you test. And that's not necessarily always easy when you have too many elaborate strategies. The other thing, Moritz, and probably we can touch on that is, and I think you mentioned that last week, is that sometimes if you make your strategies too fancy, if I can put it like that, with too many filters or bells and whistles, whatever it might be, sometimes that is actually not the best thing. It might look the best for long periods of time, but then suddenly when something really big happens, it keeps you out of a trade or a number of trades. And then it's like if you, um, for example, with equities, if you remove the 20 best trading days in the S&P in the last 20 years, even though it's just 20 days, the return of the S&P is going to go down significant, something like from 8 or 9% to 4 or 5%. And you think that's impossible, that 20 days means that much? It does. Same with trend following. If we take out some of the best trades or if we take some of the best month of our track record, our returns are going to be vastly different. So rule number one, take all the trades, right? But also rule number two, don't make it so complicated that you're going to miss some of those trades, even if you follow your system. I agree. Absolutely. I mean, some of those simple rules... I think this is what I said last week or, or two weeks ago. It continues to amaze me how well they work. I'm not sure if people are still looking at them because maybe they're they're dissing them and ditching them because they're like these old school type of rules. Why would I ever consider using them? I can only say, well, have a look. Have a look at how they work. It may not be your system. It may not be the system that you will run with, right? But at least it is a benchmark. And it's a benchmark that because it is so simple, I think is a very, very good benchmark because you know what it is that the system is doing without the bells and whistles, without a million complexities around it. It's very pure. So whatever you come up with should at least be better than that. Otherwise, you could be using those simple rules. And I think the simple rules are, they've stood the test of time. I'm not disappointed by them. I'm not saying that you need to exactly use them in their simplest way, but the the core foundation of those rules, like you say, take every trade. You need to take the 100-day breakout. You need to take the 150-day breakout. No ifs, no buts, right? Just do it. Have an initial stop, have an exit, and get on with it. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It can be frustrating, right? But I think it keeps you in the game for the long run. And one of the things that I've tweeted uh, this week, now that I remember, is is that, you know, the, the, the objective, the goal is not to win all the time with every trade. The objective really is not to lose, to stay in the game, because if you don't lose, it enables you to win in the long run. And this is extremely important. It's, there's, a, there's a, a real big difference between winning and not losing. And not losing is very, very important for the business that we do. Yeah, it's essential for all businesses, I would say, is yes. to stay in the game. So, uh, absolutely. So, appreciate the questions from from Down Under. Another question, which I think is somewhat, somewhat related, it's from 
our good friend and loyal listener, Brian. Brian writes in and he calls a, a previous podcast episode that we that we talked about. I had not t- had time to listen to it, uh, Brian, so I don't know exactly which episode it is, but I think I know exactly what you refer to. And, and the question is, in, in that episode, either Moritz or me is quoted for saying all sectors make about the same amount of money over the past 12 to 15 years, right? It's, it could well be me. It sounds like some analysis I've done. So let me uh, roll with that. Essentially, when you look at trend-following performance, and you look at sectors, I mean, as we've talked about already on this episode, when you look at sector performance, it can differ significantly from year to year. But our core belief as trend-followers really is that there shouldn't be any reason why one market should be better performing and or more trending if you have a long enough time horizon then it should really it should really play out over time and that's certainly something that our research finds the problem or the challenge for many people is that we're talking about 30 40 years it, it we're not talking about 3 years or 5 years so when i did this study and i do remember it it went back to 2006 i looked at our own performance and i took each sector And then I divided it by the number of markets in each sector just to make a very crude comparison. And frankly, the returns weren't that dissimilar on that basis, meaning the average return of a market in a sector across the portfolio was pretty similar. There will be some sectors, as we already touched upon. I mean, equities haven't been great. Fixed income has been fantastic. And and then you have something in, in, in between. But it is counterintuitive, perhaps, Brian, as you say, but that is the secret, that that's the secret source of trend following. And I think this is why I'm so, sometimes get so upset when I see people trying to lure investors into buying their latest trend following system and say, oh yeah, you can just apply this to your equity portfolio and you'll be fine. No, you won't. Because the secret to trend following is that you have to apply it not only 100% of the time, but also across a very diversified portfolio. That's the challenge. And this is why which I've also been quoted for saying before, sometimes, even though I, I fully understand why many of you listening want to be a trend follower yourself, I mean, who, who wouldn't be? I think it's fantastic. But it may not always be the optimal way forward for you. Sometimes it's just better to find a manager who has a diversified portfolio that you can get the full exposure to straight away with the amount of capital you have at the time. Then later on in life, once you have, as Morris talked about earlier, when you have enough capital to do that diversification yourself, by all means, I think it's fine to do. But it's also a lot of commitment, right? It's not something that runs by itself, even though, again, you can find ads on the internet saying that it's pretty much something you only need to spend five minutes on every single day, I'm not so sure I fully agree if you want to do it well. Uh, like with all things, you have to spend more time on, on that. So, yeah, so that's... Um, I know you fell out just a few seconds, Moritz. I hope you're back on uh, in, in that. But uh, I think you got the gist of my response to, um, to uh, Brian. Uh, anything to add? No, I got it. I agree with all you said. Cool. So those were the questions as we are approaching the hour mark, I think more or less. What else came across your table? I know you uh, were, as you said, not necessarily looking as closely on the uh, activity this week. Any other things that you wanted to uh, 
touch on today. Obviously, I'm going to go through the performance in a little bit, but if there's some other topics you like, I mean, I would recommend definitely people reading the latest memo from uh, Howard Marks, always interesting, always balanced in his view. But there's a lot of good research coming out at the moment. And maybe I want to lift the veil a little bit on something really fantastic that Moritz and Rob and I are working on at the moment. I won't tell you the full details because we're still working them out. But of course, we talk about trend following. We talk about that maybe the next 10 years can be somewhat different from the past 10 years. We've just done that today, actually. So what we're working on is bringing to you a mini-series where we will talk much more about what can lead to these trends with some people who know a lot more about these things than we do. So just sit tight for a couple of weeks more, and I think you'll be surprised, positively surprised, I would add, with the caliber of people we're going to bring on and broaden the discussion a little bit. Let's leave it for now. Make sure you pay attention every week and see when these new episodes emerge in your feed. I can only agree. We're not going to be saying too much right now, but uh, what we can say is that we've uh, done a few recordings already and I think they've been one of the best that we've ever done. So there's uh, there's really something, I think, to look forward to and to be excited about. Yeah, and it probably appeals to a much broader audience as well. So we would uh, hope and maybe even rely on on you listening out there today that when you do see these episodes, and we'll make sure you know which ones they are, that you will share them with anyone who has an interest in financial markets. But anyways, enough of a tease. Sorry about this, but it's a little bit too early for us to completely open up. B-Top 50 index so far this month is down 60 basis points, down 2.88% for the year. Sokgen CDA index is down 1.79% for the month and down 3% for the year. The trend index down 2.21 for the month, down 1.33 for the year. The short-term traders index down 63 basis points and up 3.22% for the year. And uh, frankly, I forgot to check the bridge alternatives index, but I don't think much happened this week anyway. So it's probably still down about 2.5% or so for the month of June. Anything else, Moritz, you want to interject, Will, before we wrap up for this week? No, well, thanks for listening to us. I wish everybody a great week and happy trading. Yes, absolutely. I also want to mention that there's a couple of great episodes out, generally speaking, at the moment on different podcasts. Meb Faber has done some fantastic interviews. I saw that Corey Hoffman was on um, a podcast this week. I haven't listened to it myself, but the topics look really interesting. So uh, shout out to those guys. I think it's on the Derivative podcast. So uh, keep learning, keep the focus, and uh, of course, keep coming back to Moritz and me every week. <laughs> that would be fantastic. And uh, keep your questions coming, always. That's something we really enjoy. Info at toptradersonplug.com, of course. So from Moritz and me, thanks ever so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. 
And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.